This is hot and dry. What? Oh, do we want to? Hey, do you want to? Do you want to stop and start recording no, just again, keep it or are you just gonna like roll it, it all into, into one? Okay. I'm. Let's clap, and then you'll know where it breaks. Okay. I did a big clap, so that's where it breaks. In case that's helpful. I did another one, and that'll be confusing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> another right. one. So it's the second so clap. Again, that's what I'm listening for. This is Hot and Dry, a podcast about climate change in the Southwest. And about how it's changing the places we live and how it's changing our lives. I'm Paige Bruno. And I'm Colin Happy. Today, we're sitting down with one of my favorite people in New Mexico, um, another one of my favorite people in New Mexico, Lindsay Plum. <laughs> um, Lindsay is currently the deputy director for the forestry division in New Mexico. Lindsay's one of those guys that's been really important in just in my life, uh, my professional life in the last five years, I've learned a lot from him and have just been inspired by the way that he's able to bounce almost seamlessly between talking about big ideas and philosophical things to the small nuts and bolts of getting shit done. And that's a skill set that um, is rare and incredibly important as we think about how do we how do we actually do the things that we need to do to achieve the big picture goals? Um, and so for me, I, I've just really loved all of my interactions with Lindsay. And now as I move from the Nature Conservancy to uh, Forestry Division and join Lindsay on staff, and again, as a reminder, this is just a thing Paige and I are doing for fun. It's not um, part of any of our jobs, but I am excited to to join Lindsay and in the team over there and continue to learn from him um as we move forward so that's a little bit of a preamble from me Paige sorry to to talk so much in the beginning but but tell me what you were thinking about you know Lindsay's interview no I mean I think that sort of um your sort of gush about Lindsay mirrors my own although you've um certainly had the the opportunity to work with Lindsay more and um, having just worked with Lindsay a bit, I was also really eager um, to get to sort of ask Lindsay pretty um, point blank some of the questions that we're grappling with and and especially to talk to Lindsay about what it means to sort of live in the two worlds that he lives in and how to navigate um, that reality and what he's thinking both on a personal um, and professional level about the challenges that we face. So I don't have a ton more to add. I think we'll let we'll let Lindsay demonstrate why we're uh, why we're both just sort of odd um, by his work and and the way yeah, there's a huge amount of respect and admiration for him. Um, I think that comes off really clearly in the interview. And he is an articulate and concise guy. So we will just let him let him let him roll with it. Let him teach yeah. us how it's done. <laughs> Less, he doesn't ramble as much as we do, you know, which is nice. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. <laughs> yeah, Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us. Um, maybe just start with an introduction of who you are and what you're doing and um, maybe a little bit about where you came from. Sure. Um, so my name is Lindsay Quam. I'm originally from Zuni Pueblo. Um, currently live in Santa Clara Pueblo. My wife is from Santa Clara Pueblo. Been doing forestry for a little over 20 years now, um, primarily on the forest management side. Did a little bit of wildland firefighting here and there, but um, have worked for 
Los Alamos National Laboratory, um, for Santa Clara Pueblo as uh, in their forestry department, and then uh, with the state of New Mexico through New Mexico Forestry Division. And currently I'm the Deputy Director of Forests uh, and the Tribal Liaison for the Forestry Division. As the Forestry Division, what's the short version of what y'all are trying to do? So the Forestry Division's primary goals are, one, to help the citizens of the state of New Mexico with management of their natural resources. So we, as the Forestry Division, assist private landowners. Um with uh, management of natural resources, forests, if they have any. Um, And then the other part of that is wildland fire response. So we are um, slated with um, wildland fire suppression on all non-municipal, non-tribal, non-federal land. So anything that's state and private lands falls within our jurisdiction for wildland fire response and suppression. And that's about 65% of the state. Um, so a little over 43 million acres uh, of response area for wildland fire. So, so our main area of focus now has been um, watersheds and uh, the whole landscape surrounding watersheds. Uh, one for the protection and enhancement of those watersheds to hopefully prevent um, them from burning in the future. And if they do burn, that they won't burn as severely or be as impacted um, because, you know, New Mexico gets a great majority of their water from these watersheds. Yeah, and Lindsay, I'm curious how sort of climate change and the changes that we're seeing on the landscape factor into that work and what additional challenges that presents. You know, the IPCC report came out earlier the week that we're recording this and Certainly the the prospects are a bit grim. So uh, the State Forestry Division has a 10-year forest action plan, and it sets up our priorities uh, for the next 10 years as far as how we're going to manage natural resources within state and private lands. And so a lot of that is not only watershed and wildland fire focused, but it's also climate impacts and climate mitigation focused. And so that's where we're trying to coordinate with a lot of our partners, a lot of um, experts to change our way of thinking, change our way of land management to try and focus in on what's gonna happen later into the future and how are we going to mitigate that now to set it up for the future. And I think, With anybody that works in natural resources, a lot of what you do, especially forestry, a lot of what you do in terms of forest management, you don't ever get to see the the fruits of your labor, so to speak. I mean, the things we're doing now, I'm never going to be able to see in my lifetime. Maybe kids, grandkids are going to be able to see it, but, but we're not. So that's something that we're hoping to do is not to leave it in any worse condition than what it is, but to hopefully make it a little better so those that come after us aren't left with the problems or as many of the problems that we created now. And I think that's really the goal that we're trying to accomplish as a, as a group. I'm curious, you know, I think at least traditionally, there's been a pretty small subset of the population that's been involved in um, these sort of processes and decision-making and how do we engage more voices. And I'm thinking, especially in your role as tribal liaison, like how do we engage more indigenous voices? You know, what's sort of the future of their role in helping inform the solutions? Right. So through our forest and watershed health office that's based in Albuquerque right now, um, there's, they've had a coordinating group and 
so they've built that from probably 10 different um, agencies when they first started or organizations to now at least 80. Most recently, the tribes have started to be more involved, one, because I think they've been um, more aware that this is going on. But two, I think a lot of organizations are starting or have started to recently, and I say recently within the last five to eight years, been more welcoming of uh, bringing and inviting tribes in. And I think tribes have been more open to being um, involved in, in the process. But another thing that I'm kind of working on as my role of tribal liaison with the forestry division is kind of trying to spearhead a subgroup of that coordinating group that's just specifically tribal focused and specifically made up of tribes. And so we had our initial meeting a couple months ago, and there was 10 tribes, I think, that were represented. And a lot of it was is geared towards providing them an avenue for information exchange, opportunities that they can take advantage of, or what others are doing to where maybe they're doing something similar and we can leverage resources, we can leverage funding, we can leverage expertise, whatever it is. And so that's just kind of the one thing that I'm trying to do and push to promote tribes and try and get that um, type of knowledge base for them. And, and, to let them know that, again, they're not alone. There's resources. There's people that are willing to help. These are the people that can help you. These are the ways in which they can help you. So let's all work together because, you know, ultimately we can't do it alone. And what happens on the other side of the fence is going to affect your side of the fence. And, and, you know, that's why we need to work together on it. And I think they've realized that. And, um, you know, it's kind of funny, but my boss always says, you know, the ones that show up to the table are the ones that make the decisions and those are the ones that typically benefit so you know encourage them to show up to the table because ultimately it's going to be to their benefit and just to add on to that i think it's important to have that interface with with tribes too because they bring a lot of knowledge base with them um, whether it be traditional ecological knowledge or just knowledge in general of things that they've done on their lands because they have access to a lot of different sources and resources as well for management of their lands. Uh, and, you know, tribes have a lot of um, other types of knowledge other than their traditional knowledge that they can bring to the table as well. And sometimes they're easier to work with in terms of putting funding on the ground and you have the opportunity to be able to test different things if they're so willing because um, you know when one is helping them it's benefiting them but also um, you don't have to jump through so many hoops um, say as you would through federal lands for certain things you know that you don't have to go through an intense NEPA process that takes three, four years before you get a decision and then the decision, maybe you can't do it anyway. And by then the funding's gone away and that type of stuff. So um, I think they bring a lot to the table too, that that can benefit a lot of other agencies. Maybe this is artificial to you, Lindsay, but, but when I think about the work, the forest restoration that we do kind of globally, you know, or generally in New Mexico, um, I think about it in, in almost two different kinds of buckets, right? There's a mitigation bucket where we're trying to do things that, that help us change the forest structures that, so that we can mitigate fire risk. And then there's a and then there's an adaptation bucket 
where we're trying to do things to adapt to climate warming, you know, maybe push the system in a little bit of a direction. There's a scientific case to be made that you've already kind of touched on and talked about and and the researchers are pushing for and, and we're trying to figure that stuff out. But there's also the case that needs to be made to the funders and to the regulatory agencies to help, you know, ensure that when that work is proposed that it's not coming out of the it's not coming out of left field it's not coming out of the blue and people are 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 accepting of funding something that may have felt really odd or or really out of out of the box 10 15 20 years ago and so i guess the question is kind of how have you know in your experience how receptive have federal funders or state funders been to responding to the changing conditions on the ground and responding to more innovative projects? I think it boils down to several things, but I think as with anything, unfortunately, uh, politics plays in, into it. And it depends, so I think, some the ways in which you can maximize or take advantage of these outside-the-box type thinking depends on who's in office at the time. And so, of course, the trickle-down effect, you know, um, trickles down to the other agencies. So they're going to view things the way their commander-in-chief, whatever, president, uh, governor, what have you, because they don't want to go against that grain, so to speak. But I think along with that is even though that may be there, there's still people that ultimately in these agencies, in these organizations, want to do good on the ground and want to make sure that the funding is being spent in the way it's intended or for good purposes. Um, At Santa Clara, while I was there, they were very proactive in one, getting funding, but two, showing the need, and then three, showing that they could address that need or at least move towards addressing that need and proving how that funding was addressing that need and challenging some of those thoughts in terms of, well, this is too new, we're hesitant to, this is against how we've always done it. And so I think that's part of it is being willing to challenge those voices and and ask, well, why not? Why can't we? Where is it in your statutes, in your regulations that's preventing you from allowing us to do this? And that helped break some of those barriers. But on top of that, I think bringing some of these people, these decision makers, the, the controllers of the purse strings out and showing them what you've done. I think it benefited by bringing them from their offices in Washington or their regional offices and showing them the extent to which you're dealing with the, 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 the landscape level that you're dealing with some of these challenges. And so they can see it with their own eyes. And then on top of that, once you've implemented some of your, your actions, bringing them back out and showing them what the benefits are or showing them what was done with the funding, because then that's more impactful. They actually see that it was for a good purpose and they're more apt and willing to, to be open to those new ideas and outside of the box thinking. And I think um, being willing to take the risk 
of allowing some of these outside of the box type thinking to happen. Yes, it is a risk because it's what it doesn't come to fruition, but how do you know if you don't try? And I think that's the biggest thing. And I think that's the benefit of, of being proactive and, and, and building that relationship. And that's really what it boils down to is building the relationship. Because if you don't have that, then they're not going to be open to your ideas. And I mean, it's just kind of back to the basics in terms of, again, building those relationships and getting that, that trust with one another. Um, and I think that's kind of what's unique about tribes in terms of that's their homeland. That's their home base. And I think people don't realize with tribes is there's no separation between the people and the land. The land is the people. The people are the land. And one governor that I know would always say, you know, this is our homeland. This is where we belong. This is who we are. In essence, we're like a endangered species because there's only 2,000 of us left in the world. What happens if we're gone? We're gone. You know, we as a tribe are no longer here. So that's why we've got to take care of what we have because this is all we have left. We, there's no place else in the world for us to go because this is home. So uh, that's where I think tribes build those walls up and are more protective of their lands and less apt to being open to to the to others to to come onto their lands but the advantage is is that they have a vested interest because it's their legacy that they're protecting it's their ancestral lands that they're protecting that's an advantage for tribes and that's where some of these outside of the box type ideas can be implemented a little better and easier but we as agencies as governmental agencies also be have to have to be open to those ideas open to way new ways of doing things and also recognize and understand tribes viewpoints and i think that's where some of the difficulties lie is maybe there's not always an understanding of those viewpoints or an understanding of where they're coming from and and the legacy they're trying to protect right it's harder to set it's harder to frame up a more uh a better motivation and sense of urgency than what you just did right (laughs) i think Lindsay, just one more question and um I think it may tie into that, but I'm curious, you know, one of the things in the conversations that we've had um, that's increasingly clear is that in addition to sort of um, mitigation and adaptation is we're going to have to learn how to deal with some loss um, and some change. There's some grief wrapped up in all of this. And I'm curious, you know, what you're sort of you know, how you're thinking about those losses and changes and how you're planning to move through, through those and, um, sort of wrapped up in that, like who you're looking to for inspiration, um, and, and guidance through, yeah, these transitions. Sure. Good question, actually. Um, so I think a lot of, um, natives can, can say this in terms or relate to in terms of, we kind of live in two worlds in the sense that, you know, you have your traditional cultural 
tribal world, and then you have the outside world. Um, and so there's two kind of social norms or as far as how you act in either one. And so, you know, depending on where you're at, you wear that different hat. And so for me answering that question, wearing my outside hat, um, I think the loss we're going to experience is more in the terms of forest lands. Um, you know, I think we need to be prepared that we could completely lose spruce fir component in New Mexico. Um, and to some extent, even the mixed conifer component, um, some point in the future. Now, this could be 50 years from now. It could be 500 years from now. But I think that's one thing that we need to be prepared for. Um, and we need to be prepared for definitely a hotter climate. I think, again, still wearing, you know, my state hat as a natural resource manager. Yes, we're promoting outdoor recreation. We're promoting tourism. We're promoting um, people to come in and live here in New Mexico, businesses to come in and all. But all of that takes resources. All of that takes water. Um, you know, we're trying to promote agriculture. I mean, I, th I think we're like number three in the nation for pecan production or pecan production, however you want to pronounce it. Um, you know, pistachios, definitely chili. Um, you know, we have a lot of dairies as well. So all of that takes resources. All of that takes water, um, you know, and I think that's something that needs to be considered because that's going to impact those economic endeavors. That's going to impact the what we can and can't do as a state. And that's going to impact what us as land managers are going to uh, have to be slated with um, to try and mitigate or, or, or take care of those issues. Um, so I think that's one thing that we're going to have to really take a good hard look at. And those are some of the losses that we may be experiencing is less dairies, less agriculture, less forests, you know, less recreation, less economic growth. Um, on the tribal hat side, you know, you're dealing with a lot of other types of influences and they necessarily may not be on the natural resources side, but you're, you're still dealing with, um, you know, loss of your culture, loss of language, you know, um, more assimilation to the dominant society. And on top of that, you're trying to entice this newer generation to the traditional types of thought, to the culture, to why it's important to go and work at home or be at the reservation to help these types of things. But that's not kind of the glitz and glamour that they're seeing, you know, uh, the glitz and glamour isn't on the reservation, it's off the reservation. And so how are you trying to do that? And if tribes are going to be dealing with these same issues and which they are, how do you get that expertise in-house? How do you entice them to bring that expertise back in-house? Um, 
you know, perfect example. I don't work for my tribe. You know, I got educated, born and raised, but I didn't work for them. I'm not working for them. You know, uh, I didn't go back home to to help that, you know, to help them. Um, so how do you do that? And it's not because it's not, not for want. Um, it's just that's just not where my path took me yet. So that's part of what they're dealing with on top of all these other natural resources issues that that they're they're trying to work on. But uh, for them, and I'm not speaking for any tribe in particular, I'm not speaking, you know, on behalf of any tribe, but just from what I observe and see, that's a lot of what they're contending against is just loss of that culture in their youth. You know, it's worrisome because if you lose your culture, are you that people anymore? You know, are you, can you claim to be that people anymore? Um, and of course, loss of culture is associated with loss of your language. And, you know, there's a lot of language immersion going on with a lot of tribes, but a lot are losing their language. A lot of kids aren't speaking the language or they don't understand the language. And it's, it's, it's of concern um, because the language is tied into pretty much their whole cultural loop life way um, at the tribe. You combine all of that with trying to get movement towards protecting your resources and then enhancing them and ensuring that it's going to happen. You know, that's where I think some tribes may become a little more reliant on outside agencies or outside support to help them in that endeavor, to help them with the management of their resources. And maybe it'll benefit in terms of Maybe some tribes will be a little be be a little more open to the cross boundary landscape management. Um, you know, I, I, you throwing that term out quite a bit, but I mean it's true. You know, um, you you're, in order to be effective at a landscape scale, you you need to move across the landscape, no matter who owns it, and they all have to be willing to be able to participate. And maybe that'll be a benefit. Um, to some of the issues that we're facing because they're not unique um, to just one agency, to one group of people, to one, to one, you know, section of, of the, the state or one section of the country, you know, we're all going to be dealing with it, period. Um, every country, every state is going to be dealing with it, whether we like it or not. Then I think that's one, one thing that needs to be considered too into the future. Yeah. Lindsay, that was a lot to think about. And I appreciate you sort of, being willing to wear both hats. I think it's an important, <laughs> I mean, willing, I guess you don't have much of a choice, but I appreciate <laughs> you being willing to share the perspective from both hats. And um, I think it's a really important thing to keep in mind as we go forward, you know, working together on these things, like mm -hmm. how do we support each other without asking people to compromise, right? you know, their identities and the things that they hold dear. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, I appreciate that. And I think we've taken up a ton of your time. So um, I just want to say thank you so much. That was, we learned a ton and um, yeah, thank you for your work too. <laughs> it's pretty invaluable. I thank you guys. And, you know, I know um, this is kind of a personal thing you guys are doing, but I also work with you guys professionally. And I know that the things you guys are doing and it's benefiting a lot of people and it's doing a lot of good and I appreciate what you guys are doing and I appreciate being a partner with you guys and um thank you for having me on this it was really really neat my first podcast ever so hey All right. lucky us <laughs> All right. <laughs> right yeah <laughs> 
Yeah. Thanks, Lindsay. I feel like it's come up a lot that the grief around this stuff is really real. And there's a lot of questions about what to do with it. And I guess just felt like Lindsay sort of embodied it in this way that felt, um, I was just grateful. I felt like he, he didn't hold back, you know, didn't kind of immediately pivot to like, but it'll be okay. Or I am hopeful or whatever. He just sort of, he let the weight of it be the weight of it. And I think that's an important thing right now. Not to say, you know, we doom and gloom our way straight down, but I think it's very real and really important to just acknowledge that and not feel the immediate need to pivot from it. Sometimes it's really important just to sit with that for a little while. And not try to run away from it, not try to pivot from it, just to acknowledge that there will be suffering. And that's hard to do, right? Especially for us people who want to solve problems. We're like, well, okay, well, if that is the case, then what do we do about it? How do we fix it? How do we fix it, right? Yeah. And sometimes in doing that, in jumping so quickly to the problem-solving piece of it, which is an important part, but in jumping so quickly to it, we gloss over or we or we we miss opportunities to better understand what the suffering actually is and what it actually means. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that around, Colin. I'm excited to see what you and Lindsay get up to at State Forestry. Um, it'll be great. Me too. I got to jump, unfortunately. But okay. So. Yeah, check us out, hotdrypodcast at gmail.com. If you want to send us an email, we're at hotdrypod on the Twitter. Um, Paige is, you know, fully ready to respond to every DM and email. (laughs) Every single one. (laughs) All right. Have a good day, everybody. All right.